Well, that was the opening music to Capricorn One, released in 1978 and directed by Peter Himes and starring Elliot Gould, James Brolin, uh, Brenda Vaccaro, Hal Holbrook, Karen Black, Telly Savalas, O.J. Simpson, Sam Waterston, uh, Telly Savalas. Did I say Telly Savalas? Because he was great. <laughs> I really liked him. He was. The wild pilot, airplane pilot. Yeah, he, that was quite the chase at the end. Uh, and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from North Bend, where we're hoping for some rain to clear up all the smoke that we've had in the air because of all the wildfires. And uh, this Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where our air quality has gotten significantly better, welcoming everyone back to Capricorn One, which uh, Warner Brothers released, and it was a very big success. And uh, in spite of many plot holes that you and I each have found, <laughs> I love this movie. It's right up there with another movie from 1978 with Michael Douglas, Coma. <laughs> yeah, Coma. Which also has a fair number of plot holes in it. But uh, the director is one of our favorites, uh, Peter Himes. He, he directed Outland from 1981, which is uh, uh, kind of like a high noon set in an off-planet with Sean Connery as the sheriff, and then 2010 from 1984, as well as one from 1994 that did really well, Time Cop. Oh, yeah. I like that movie. Which was a fun movie. Yeah. But this movie um, has a pretty straight-ahead plot um, for Capricorn 1, the the uh, the plot is basically Hal Holbrook's character has engineered, he's Dr. James Kellaway, he's engineered a massive cover-up because he's discovered that the, uh, the uh, spacecraft that's going to Mars and back with three astronauts has a fatal error in the design and construction of the air supply on the, on the ship and that the astronauts would all die. So he comes up with this really convoluted complex plot to cover the whole thing up get them off the spaceship and make the rest of the world feel that they actually did go to mars when in fact these three guys were spirited away to an old aircraft landing strip and and uh, air uh, military base about 300 miles from uh, houston so we we really get into the detail of this uh well basically it really it really meets our standard of conspiracy, conspiracy and paranoia, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does, yeah. Every, it's, some of the plot holes involved, how, how could they keep something like this secret from the hundreds, with the hundreds and thousands of people that were involved in it, with uh, leaks and whistleblowers and today's fake news, or uh, social media would end up being fake news. Yeah. little bit of trivia, there's a, the, the name of the company that manufactured the life support system in this movie that was going to fail after a couple months in space was the same company that is in Outland that runs the mining colony that uh, Sean Connery is the <laughs> sheriff of. So, yeah, there's a little connection there. That's kind of cool. But, yeah, the plot holes start right from the beginning when they spirit the three astronauts out of the capsule because I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, people just watching with a telescope wouldn't kind of notice that, hey, the elevator's coming down from the capsule and there's 
people in it that look like the astronauts, you know. <laughs> Just a minor detail. And then they get down on the ground and they have to get them into a van. You'd think there would have been the possibility that some telephoto lens would have picked that up. But having said that, they do get spirited away. Yeah, and then when they get spirited away to the uh, to this abandoned air, air base in, in Texas, uh, they, they get a... A speech we get a speech from Hal Holbrook's character that's quite elaborate like he's really got a justification for why he's doing this and and it wants to let them know like how he's devoted his life to this and that he just can't let this one little thing about the failed life support system derail his whole career and, and the whole space program I have to start by saying that if there was any other way if there was even the slight chance of another alternative. I would give anything not to be here with you now. Anything. Brew, how long have we known each other? Sixteen years. That's how long. Sixteen years. You should have seen yourself then. You looked like you just walked out of a Wheaties box. And me, all sweaty palmed and deadly serious. I told everybody about this dream I had of conquering the new frontier, and they all looked at me like I was nuts. You looked at me and said yes. I remember when you told me Kay was pregnant. We went out and got crocked. I remember when Charles was born. We went out and got crocked again. The two of us, Captain Terrific and the Mad Doctor, talking about reaching the stars, and the bartender telling us maybe we'd had enough. Sixteen years. And then Armstrong stepped out on the moon and we cried. We were so proud. Willis, you and Walker, you came in about then, both bright and talented wise asses, looked at me in my wash and wear shirt, carrying on this hot love affair with my slide rule, and even you were caught up in what we'd done. I remember when Glenn made his first orbit in Mercury. They put up television sets in Grand Central Station and tens of thousands of people missed their trains to watch. You know, when Apollo 17 landed on the moon, people were calling up the networks and bitching because reruns of I Love Lucy were canceled. Reruns, for Christ's sake. I can understand if it was a new Lucy show. I mean, what the hell is a walk on the moon? But reruns. Oh, jeez. And then suddenly everybody started talking about how much everything cost. Was it really worth 20 billion to go to another planet? What about cancer? What about the slums? How much does it cost? How much does any dream cost, for Christ's sake? Since when is there an accountant for ideas? You know who is at the launch today? Not the president, the vice president, that's who. The vice president and his plump wife. President was busy. He's not busy. He's just a little bit scared. He sat there two months ago and put his feet up on Woodrow Wilson's desk. And he said, Jim, make it good. Congress is on my back. They're looking for a reason to cancel the program. We can't afford another screw-up. Make it good. You have my every good wish. His every good wish. I got his sanctimonious vice president. That's what I got. And so there we are, 
After all those hopes and all that dreaming, he sits there with those flags behind his chair and tells me we can't afford a screw-up. And guess what? We had a screw-up. A first-class, bona fide, made-in-America screw-up. The good people from Con Amalgamate delivered a life support system cheap enough so they could make a profit on the deal. Works out fine for everybody. Con Amalgamate makes money. We have our life support system. Everything's peachy. Except they made a little bit too much profit. We found out two months ago it won't work. You guys would all be dead in three weeks. It's as simple as that. And I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, this guy's ego is, like, amazing. <laughs> He's, his back is to the wall because if this fails, his career is down the toilet and he'll be spending a lot of time in a federal prison. But he'd be also, he also got these three guys there. They don't know anything about the plot, and they're somewhat suspect. And then they say, well, we're not going to do that. And then Holbrook further reveals that all their family members are on one plane headed back from uh, Florida to Texas, and there's a bomb on the plane, and if these three don't agree, they'll blow the plane up. I'm like, wow. Is the only way to keep something alive is to become everything I hate. I don't know if it's worth keeping it alive. Please, Brew, don't talk like that. What the hell's the matter with you? Please, Brew, don't talk like that. I don't think this is right. All the rest is bullshit. You have to help. What do you mean, I have to? You have to help. But what if I don't? Please, don't put me in a corner. You're crazy. You know that? You know that? You're crazy. You've got us in the middle of this nut house, and you don't want to be put in a corner? Your families. What about our families? Please, you have to help. What about our families? You have to help. Oh, shit, this thing is out of my hands. You think it's all a couple of loony scientists. It's not. It's bigger. There are people out there, forces out there, who have a lot to lose. They're grown-ups. It's gotten too big. It's in the hands of grown-ups. What about our families? They're flying back from the Cape to Houston. They're all together on the plane. No, you're not serious. Please. Brew, don't make me. You son of a bitch, tell me. They're on the plane together, goddammit. You want it in writing? There's a device. It's on the plane, too. There's some people, if I don't give them the all-clear signal, they'll explode it. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. You wouldn't. Tell me you wouldn't. I, I can't tell you that, Bruce. He went from, hey, I'm your best friend, to, you know, do this for me as your friend, to, I'm an evil mastermind, you know, like, I'm going to kill your family. It was a flip of a switch there. He, he knew how to use leverage, didn't he? <laughs> so he gets all three of them to, uh, to go along, and, and the setup is quite elaborate. They've got a studio in this old military hangar, and it's supposed to look like Mars, and the landing craft is supposed to look like the one that was uh, sent off, and... Another plot hole is uh, they were able to go to and return the rocket and the landing craft was able to go to Mars and back in uh, less time than it actually takes. But we just just decided if there were issues with the timeline or any of the things that interfered with the main story, forget it. Yeah, they don't forward. even bother to try to explain any of that. And and even 
like the size of the capsule they're in is way too small for a trip to Mars and th they would never be able to survive for months and months in space with all that radiation and and that time in in that size of a of a capsule so it it's they just they don't even bother they just like brush right over all the those technical details and and they do sort of use one scientific technical detail though in the plot because one of the engineers at the control center of NASA discovers that the time that it takes for the television radio the television signals to reach earth is way shorter than it should be and he brings it up to his supervisor and his supervisor says Dr. Bergen yes Elliot I wonder if I could talk to you for a moment what is it well <clears throat> there's something I have a problem sir oh are you feeling all right oh yes sir it's the readout what about the readout well I, I just can't figure something out well perhaps I can be of some help I hope so. See, I, I ran a check on the transmission on my own, on the signals. On your own? Yes, sir. I like your dedication. The readout, the television signals are coming in ahead of the spacecraft signals. It's like they're closer or something, much closer. No, that's not possible. There must be some malfunction in your equipment. Well, I don't think so, Dr. Bergen. You see, I double-checked that console. Which console are you on? The 36, sir. Well, that's the answer. We've been having some problems with the circuitry on 36. We've had trouble with it before. I'll make sure it's repaired and... Uh, Thank you for bringing the problem to my attention. You show initiative. I like that. So they totally replaced the guy's console, and they probably rigged it so that it would look correct to him. But the guy wrote his own program, because he's a NASA engineer, that's what they do, and still figured out that it was wrong and brought it up to Hal Holbrook's character. And the look on his face was like, you wrote your own program? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Dr. Kellaway, I wonder if I'd speak to you for a moment. Certainly, Elliot. What seems to be the problem? Well, I just can't figure something out, sir. What is that? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but it's in the readout. I spoke to Dr. Bergen about it a long time ago, and he said it was in the console. I'd like you to take a look at it. What console are you on? Telemetry is a 36. Oh, yes, Dr. Bergen told me about that. We had that console repaired. I know, sir. It's just... I keep on having the same readouts. What readout? Well, sir, I uh, ran a program on my own just to check something, and the readout's different. You ran your own program? Uh, yes, sir. And uh, I don't think it's the console. Well, we'll have it shut down, and I'll see that it's serviced. Thank you, Elliot, for bringing the matter to my attention. So that guy gets well, disappeared <laughs> pretty quick. Uh, and it was kind of funny because he's friends with um, Elliot Gould's character, who's Robert Caulfield, who's a reporter. And they're out playing pool, and this engineer is about to spill the beans to Caulfield. Uh, but then when Caul Caulfield goes to get more drinks and it comes back, his engineer friend is just gone. And... And then he goes to his friend's apartment, and it's like the guy never lived there. And we find out that, in fact, they've somehow bought out, bought off, like, the building management and maybe even the neighbors to go along with the story, because it's like the guy never even existed. Yes? Is Witter in? Tell him it's Caulfield. Who? Witter, Elliot Witter. 
There's no one here by that name. You must have the wrong apartment. Well, this is apartment 228, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you probably have the wrong building. You know, they all sort of look alike. Yeah, that's right. This is 4311 Claridge, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Elliot Witter lives at 4311 Claridge in apartment 228. Is this a joke? Look, I've been here a million times. Elliot's a friend of mine, and he lives in this apartment. Look, mister, whoever you are, I'm cleaning an oven. It's my oven. It's in my kitchen, in my apartment. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to get back to it. Wait a minute, just wait. Look, I'm not a crazy person, and I'm not a mugger. I'm looking for my friend, and he lives in this apartment. I swear it. Would you get your foot out of my door, or I'm going to call the police? Now, I don't think this is funny anymore. Wait, I can prove I've been here before. I know this apartment. Get out of here, or do I have to call the police? Well, they, they bought off hundreds, if not thousands, of people to pull this off if, if, you, if you buy into it, which you have to do in order to enjoy the movie, which I do. Every time I see it, I'm like, yes, this is, <laughs> this is, great, this is great entertainment. And uh, Elliot Gould, as the uh, intrepid reporter, discovers that his friend has just completely disappeared. But not only that, when he leaves the apartment building, they've jerry-rigged his uh, Ford Mustang so it has no brakes and he can't slow down. And he goes whipping down and off a bridge into the uh, bay. That was exciting. I enjoyed uh, that little sequence. That was he was going 100 <laughs> yeah, miles, an, going hour 90 miles an hour town. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> wow. And he survives, of course. And, uh, oh, I did want to mention that the uh, political figures in it, the representative and the vice president, are really cartoonish, especially at the beginning of the film where they're at the uh, launch. It's just, they just, they have very limited lines and they're very, I would say, phony in the way they act. Mr. Vice President, please give my regards to the president. Oh, yes, I'll be very happy to do that, Hollis. I uh, hope that whatever problems he found so important not to be here today, I hope he has considerable success with them. Well, that's really very sporting of you, Hollis. I'm sure the president will be very pleased to learn of your support. The president would get considerable more of my humble support if he would only be a little more helpful with this program here. Now, Hollis, you know the president is most interested in this program. I am most interested in a lot of things, including my wife's bridge game. That is not the same as supporting something. Hollis, there are a number of people who feel that we have problems right here on Earth that merit our attention before we spend billions of dollars on outer space. There are a number of people who feel that there are no more pressing problems in our declining position in world leadership. It was wonderful seeing you again, Hollis. The pleasure was all mine, Mr. Vice President. But uh, those are people that uh, Hal Holbrook has to please to get his money to keep going. He needs to do anything. It's kind of like one of those 1930s Universal movies where the mad scientist does it, whatever he needs to do to get his goal and meet his goal. 
And nothing's in the way. Nothing's going to stand in the way. Congressperson's played by David Huddleston, and that's Hollis Peeker. And I don't know who played the vice president, but he was, uh, I recognized him. He was uh, James Caron. K-A-R-E-N was the vice president. He was in another movie later called Return of the Living Dead. He turns into a zombie. Be- <laughs> I missed yeah, that Yeah, it's a great, great movie. And he, he plays a really funny part in that movie. But yeah, I recognized him from that. But yeah, those characters are pretty one-dimensional and cartoonish. You know, the thing about this film, though, it's got a first-rate director and cast. And, and the music, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's music, is hyped up and amps up the well, action. Well, it was really the, successful the, in the box the office, too. It was a big Oh, very big successful, hit. yeah. I know I went. It's got some great action set pieces, like that that car, uh, out of control car chase. It wasn't really a chase; it, it was just him trying to not kill, get get killed or kill anybody. And then uh, when they take off, when they when they yeah. So if we continue with the plot, so uh, it, it seems like it's all gonna work. Like everybody's buying into it, 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 it except for the one NASA engineer who they've taken care of. The pu- the public yeah, he had an early retirement. <laughs> the public is buying into it, and and they're on their way back. And one of the questions I had was, did they did, did they actually send a spaceship all the way to Mars and back? But was just, nobody was on it? I guess they did. And then during reentry, there was a, a heat shield malfunction. And my question for you was that was that planned? Was the plan all along to have? to have the capsule get destroyed during re-entry so that they could just erase all trace of the fact that these guys had never been in the capsule? Oh, I absolutely think that was a part of the, the plan because they, did, they didn't want these three guys running around alive to, to, to spill the beans because they, they couldn't control them once they got back on Earth. So, yes, I think that was a planned event. Yeah. I mean, Hal Holbrook was up to... No good all the way through. He had a bomb planted on the plane with the family uh, that, to blow it up if these guys didn't go along with the yeah, plot. Yeah, that was that was plan. his leverage against them. He was going to kill the family members. The guy was evil. He went from pretending to be uh, Brubaker's, who's, play, who's Charles Brolin's character. He's sort of the main character uh, of the astronaut crew. He... he plays it off like they're best friends and that that they've kind of grown up together in the in NASA and and then within two minutes when Brubaker says well I don't want to go along with this you know I'm not I'm not a fool and then <laughs> he he says oh yeah well if you don't I'm gonna kill your whole family like all your family so it's like whoa okay that came out of nowhere <laughs> <laughs> have a nice day <laughs> so they go along out of they have no choice but yeah I, th- I think the plan was to to knock them off also because that way there'd be no survivors that that could somewhere down the road reveal that it was all fake and brubaker figures this out he says you know what we're supposed to die we, we the capsule burned up in the atmosphere i just know it that was the plan so we've got to escape ladies and gentlemen i have a brief statement and then i will answer your questions it must have been re-entry something went wrong during re-entry why haven't they told us anything? They don't want us to know what went wrong. What went wrong? Where the hell is Callaway? Where the hell are we? At T plus 259 days, 15 hours, 11 minutes in the flight of Capricorn 1, which is 2 minutes, 18 seconds after interface, the heat shield warning light on the mission control monitoring panel turned red. We... 
are dead. What? We're dead. Shit, I was such a terrific guy. We tried to establish radio contract, contact with the spacecraft, and we were unsuccessful. It landed off course. Why haven't they said anything to us? And if it never landed, either the heat shield separated or the chutes never opened. Either way, we are dead. The heat shield evidently separated from the command module, and as you know, the heat shield is the only protection the module has against the heat buildup on re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. The spacecraft disintegrated within 12 seconds after the loss of the heat shield. Right now, Kellaway is making a speech about what brave, wonderful guys we were. I cannot adequately describe how we feel. These men were an integral part of a family here in the program. Anybody ever sees us again and the whole thing falls apart. Simple as that. They can't afford to have us around. That is the end of my statement. Have you spoken to the families? Yes. I don't know how we have a lot of choice in this matter. I say we get the hell out of here. Anybody disagree? So they take the hinges off the door. Like this is not a secure facility by any means. <laughs> no, he uses he uses some kind of a medallion. Yeah, to take the hinges off the door, and then they escape. And then, of course, they're pilots, so they hijack like this jet, this Lear jet. Did you wonder at the time where was all where were, where were all these uh, security people that were in suits? Yeah, where were the guards? There was no guards out in front of the door. So- they came running out of some other building. Yeah, it was it was it was both like a, a, a he was Hal Holbrook was sort of like a mastermind, but also kind of a bumbling fool at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had difficulty with the details. Yeah. <laughs> so then they take off, but they but, don't they don't have any fuel in the plane, and they forgot to check the fuel levels. Well, not like they're what are they going to do? Like take time to fill up the tanks or something? Like they didn't have a choice, so they had to take off. And then they had to belly land it in the desert. And I like that scene, too, where they were having to come in and land it in the desert. Yes, that looked very uh, realistic. The uh, Let's see, the other things that came up uh, as they were escaping, I guess we covered it, like uh, O.J. Simpson, who could not get the door of the plane closed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Boy, that was, that was exciting. And then they almost land or crash. But I tell you. And just to see O.J. Simpson in a film from 1977 is an amazing thing, given what happened back in the early 90s and, and later. Wow. Well, and he'd been in one other film, I think, before this. And I, I read that the director wasn't, this definitely wasn't his first choice because he thought other actors had been in the business longer and paid their dues. But O.J. Simpson was such a huge star that the producers wanted to have him on board and in the end it ended up working out but it it was super weird to watch him knowing what happens later in his life it was yeah it was and then one other uh trivia aside thing that really doesn't make any difference anyway elliot gould and james brolin have both uh, been married to barbara streisand yeah, that was interesting. In fact, James Brolin is still, I think, believe I believe he's married. And uh, his son, Josh Brolin, is in the new Dune movie. Have you seen the new Dune trailer? No. Okay, I'm going to send you a link to that because it looks amazing. Oh, nice. 
But the cast again, I mean, they were these were first rate people. Uh, Elliot Gould's done a hundred films, and James Brolin started out in television. And uh, Hal Holbrook, I mean, he's been in he's been in the business since 1948. He's still alive at 95. Had a huge success playing Mark Twain. Oh, okay. On the stage. On the stage, and I believe they made a movie of it. And 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 this is not his first bad guy role. In 1973, he plays the cynical chief of detectives in the San Francisco police force in the Clint Eastwood movie Magnum Force. Hmm. And at the end of it, he gets his due from Clint. You know, an uh, uh, interaction I liked was between Elliot Gould and Karen Black, because Karen Black is, I think, also a reporter. And they have this funny like rapport where he he's like trying to get... A favor from her and, and she's like well don't you just want to jump me <laughs> yeah you see i told you you tell me about the lonely plight of a dedicated journalist i tell you to stuff it you tell me about a meaningful relationship i tell you to stuff it you tell me you're in trouble you're out on bail you just got fired i tell you i'll be right over my head hurts you look awful thank you very much you're quite welcome did you find out what i asked one o'clock in the morning, I get a call from an unemployed junkie to find out all of the military installations in a 300-mile radius around Houston, Texas. You certainly have a way with words. Did you find out? Yes, and it wasn't easy. It took exhaustive research. Well, I'm proud of you. How many? One. White Bluff. It's a sack base. My father used to be stationed there. That's exhaustive research? At one o'clock in the morning, you call your father. That's exhaustive. White Bluff. That's too big. Too big for what? Too big for what I want. What do you want? I'm thinking of enlisting. They'll never take you. That's why I'm thinking of enlisting. You're on a story, aren't you? I was fired. You're on a story, and I'm helping you. This can't be happening. I really appreciate that. The only reason I'm doing it, considering your track record, whatever story you're on, will turn out to be garbage. You shouldn't mince words. I'll pitch you some coffee, then you can jump me. There's no other one besides White Bluff? No. Except one abandoned base they used for training during World War II. Jackson. There's nothing there now. Don't you want to jump me? Of course I do. Where's Jackson? About 300 miles directly west. I think I'm going to get angry with you. You have any money on you? You want me to pay you? How much? About 100. Why don't I just leave it on the dresser in the morning? Give it to me now. <laughs> in advance? That's the height of conceit. Please, in your car keys. You're really being terrific. Why? You're not obnoxious when you're helpless. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome. Also, Liz Haller said you were super. Well, when I get back, we'll jump each other. Maybe. I'll get arrested again. It's a deal. Well, he's like, well, yeah, but first, like, can, I, can, can we do this? And so it's, I, I'm on the trail of a story. Get out of the way. Oh, I tell you, it's it, again. I have to reiterate. I, I every time I see this movie, I enjoy it. It's maybe it's one of those guilty pleasure things. I mean, I was I, there was parts of it that I really liked. I liked the action set pieces. I, I love the so continuing with the pot, plot. So. After they belly land the Learjet, then they split up and they go in three different directions, like uh, west, I think north, and east. And they're in the desert, so they're just trying to 
they I think their plan is that if at least one of them can get to civilization, it'll blow the whole lid off of this conspiracy cover-up thing. I was amazed when they landed and they were getting the provisions out of the plane. They had each got one little bottle of water. Yeah, that's all they had it on the like plane. It was about yeah. A, uh, yeah. This plane was not well stocked or provisioned or anything, yeah. Uh, so they're, I think they're probably out in the desert for a few days, but, but of course, uh, Dr. James Kellaway, our, our bad guy, sends out the military. I don't know if this was some kind of like covert unit like who who did he call to go out and find the astronauts that were supposed to be going to mars but weren't i figured that one out that's that same unit in the cia that we discovered was in existence at in three days of the condor oh, it still okay. survived it's the, or this cia within the cia yeah this was okay. a few years after the condor but they were there and and they were involved in this too because they needed some extra funding Gotcha. Well, that, yeah. that's as good as anything. I'll go with that. <laughs> and those two helicopters become major players, uh, actors in the story. They're they're un they're unmarked. Yeah, I mean they have a they have as big a part as anybody else in the movie. And I read that the stunt coordinators and the pilot of that uh, by by wing said it was the most challenging and difficult and technical uh, piece that they'd ever worked on. Which I believe. I mean, it was it was crazy. That 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 alone was worth watching the movie for. Because what what ends up happening is that um, Brubaker and John Walker, played by O.J. Simpson, and Peter Willis, played by Sam Waterston, are the three astronauts, and they're out in the desert. But O.J. Simpson and Sam Waterston get captured, and I'm assuming they got killed. Like we never see them again. I'm assuming they just got killed. I'm sure they just offed him there yeah. and left him. And so it's up to Brubaker now, and he's going through the desert and, and, and hiding. I love that scene where he covers himself up with dirt, and then the helicopters fly over, yeah. and then he comes out of the dirt. That's a pretty great, iconic scene. Or the dinner he had in that cave. Of the rattlesnake, yeah. Yes, oh, that, that was very inviting. So he survives, and he makes it to wow. this little tiny, um, kind of almost abandoned gas station. Uh, and at the same time, our intrepid reporter is on the hunt and trying to get his boss to buy into this idea of this conspiracy that he thinks that he's found. And then there's that funny speech when Caulfield brings it up to his boss and his boss is like, you know what reporters really do? They go out and they cover stories. They don't just come up with, and he calls yeah. them Scoop Caulfield. <laughs> just always going after the scoop. <laughs> How nice of you to join us here. Listen, I think I got something. You need a dermatologist? Don't tell me. I'll get it. Uh, George Raft, right? Where the hell have you been? I have to talk to you. I think I'm on to something. It could be your actual ball game. I mean it. Golly gee, Scoop, that sounds very interesting. Something's wrong. Something big. They know I'm on to it, and they try to kill me. Who's they? I can't tell you. Why not? You wouldn't believe me. You don't think so? Okay, listen to me. I got a tip from a friend, a good friend. Then he disappeared. He disappeared? Like he never existed. There's some lady living in his apartment. His apartment is all different. She said she's been living there for more than a year. I checked the building rental office. They have receipts from her for more than a year. I checked NASA personnel. They have no record that my friend ever worked there. They say they never even heard of him. So this friend of yours who works at NASA gives you a tip and then he disappears. And it turns out that he never lived in his apartment. He never worked at NASA. And this is the guy that gave you the tip on your cosmic scoop and you think I won't believe you? My car. Someone tampered with my car. The one you decided to go swimming with? 
They did something to it. I couldn't stop it. Can you prove that? police said, uh, they said that nothing was wrong. And you think I won't believe you? Somebody took a shot at me. When? Yesterday. Thank God I've got an alibi. I'm telling you the truth. Listen to me. And listen good. I don't like you, Caulfield. You're ambitious. You think the way to get ahead is to come up with a scoop of the century. Woodward and Bernstein were good reporters. That's how they did it. Not by telling me they've located Patty Hearst three times like you did. Or that brilliant piece of investigative journalism you pulled off by finding an eyewitness to the second gunman in the Kennedy assassination. The small fact that the man had been in a mental institution at the time never deterred you, not Scoop Caulfield. Well, most reporters are like me. They are plotters. They spend a lot of their time checking little things, like facts. They cover mundane stories like wars and trials and hearings. You never seem to have enough time in your busy schedule to stoop so low as to cover a story. You occupy your time with tips from people who never existed, driving your car into water and then claiming it wasn't your fault, getting shot at by unseen gunmen. Now, I really hate to interrupt your meteoric career with something so plebeian as a legitimate story. However, a trainload of propane gas had the bad taste to derail near Galveston, and there's a whole town that just might blow up. So it would be just really peachy of you if you would join your film crew that's waiting for you on the plane at this very moment while we speak. That was some speech. I thought so. I cannot go to Galveston right now. I don't think I heard you. Look. When a reporter tells his assignment editor that he thinks he may be onto something that could be really big, the assignment editor is supposed to say, you got 48 hours, kids, and you better come up with something good or it's going to be your neck. That's what he's supposed to say. I saw it in a movie. Get your ass on that plane. I can't. I have to follow this. And you can't tell me what this earth-shattering story is? It sounds too crazy. If I told you, I'd be in more trouble. You're not crazy. I'm crazy. I'm crazy for listening, and I'm crazy for saying what I'm about to say. I'll give you 24 hours to come up with something, not 48. I saw the movie, too. It was 24. He was the, the the editor. His boss was a little bit of a cartoon figure, also. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I had a problem with the movie are these these long sort of like elaborate speeches. So, uh, Kellaway has one when he's trying to convince the astronauts about to to join the the conspiracy, and then, uh, yeah, his editor has one about this whole scoop thing, and and then uh, there's another one uh, later between. Oh gosh, there was at least three. I'm thinking of what the other one was. Well, you know, even oh, it was it was kind of that whole interaction between the the vice president and the congressman after the launch. Oh yeah, where they were sitting in the spectator area, and each one was trying to outdo the other one for. Yeah, it almost felt like the writers were trying to be a little bit too clever to me. It was it was a little bit yeah. over the top um, for me for my taste. Well, the the primary writer for it was Peter Himes, the director. Yeah, I think he loved. I, so. I think he loved his dialogue for sure. <laughs> so these these helicopters. I just want to mention. I think another great scene is when O.J. Simpson is on the desert floor and hallucinating, and he thinks he sees oh, two yeah. birds, and then they morph into that the two helicopters. Great. I thought that was yeah. well done. So whoever did the special effects on this did a really good job. I forget. There was an animator. I think that might have been animated. 
there were, I saw in the credits there was an animator, uh, so maybe some of that was. Oh, I bet animated. it was. Caulfield gets set up by this covert CIA group that we've identified that's also running the helicopters, and he goes to jail because <laughs> they plant cocaine in his apartment and then arrest him. But then his editor lets him out, and then they have this big kind of confrontation, and and his editor fires him. So then he goes and calls Karen Black's character, oh, Karen. Judy Drinkwater, to come get him. And I love that car that they were driving, that 240Z. That thing was awesome. Oh, I know. Those were so popular Yeah, those are then, iconic. In the 70s. And so then they go back to her place, and she's like, well, do you want to come in and jump me? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, well, I do, but can I borrow a hundred bucks first? And then I just need to go out to this desert. I'm, I'm busy base right now. In the, you know, abandoned desert base, which she helped find, which she helped identify because her dad was in the military or something. So then he's driving out in this, this little sports car and, and finds this A&A crop dusting service. And that's, uh, Telly Savalas is the, is the pilot. And they have a funny, another one of these kind of like almost too clever sets of dialogue between the two of them. Morning. Morning. You in charge here? See that sign there? Yes. Well, read it. I did. Out loud. A&A Crop Dusting Service. You want to know who I am? I bet you're one of the A's. But which one? I bet you can't answer that question, smart ass. First one. Wrong. Can I have one more guess? You got it. The second one. <laughs> Wrong. I'm both of them. A and A. My name is Al Bain. Now, I got a son. You know, the other A was for him. But he don't like to fly. He became a lawyer. I think he's a pervert, so I took the A away from him. You want to speak to somebody in charge? You speak it to both of them. My name is Caulfield. Hey, I can't help that. Mr. Al Bain, how much do you charge to dust the field? $25. I'd like to hire your plane. That'd be $100. You said you charged $25. $25 to dust a field, but you ain't got no field because you ain't no farmer, which means you ain't poor, and I think you're a pervert. Okay, 100 125 What? Because you said yes to 100 too quick, which means you can afford 125 People don't actually talk like that, so... They were, that was a little over the top. But Telly Savalas decides, okay, for $125, bucks, i will I'll take you out to look for your missing friend. He keeps and raising the price. He does. Well, he says, well, you're a, c- a city slicker. You must be able to afford a, you know, you, you agree to 100 too fast, which means you can pay 125. <laughs> so then they're out flying around and they actually uh, see these helicopters. And then they see the helicopters coming to this uh, uh, gas station and they think, well, they, he must be there. So then they start to land. And, and the timing of all this is like amazing because right as the bad guys are going to, capture brubaker the crop dusting plane lands just so that brubaker can run out and jump onto the wing of the crop duster <laughs> it was like wow well well and then they cut back to uh to uh brenda vaccaro's character who mrs brubaker and she and the children are getting ready to go to a memorial service that the president and the vice president are going to be at that's taking place at almost the simultaneous time as this chase. Well, that's the way it looks from the editing. It looks like this chase is coming to a conclusion at the same time they're headed off to uh, the memorial service, which I think they were several hundred miles apart, right? Uh, uh, yeah, easily 300. 
Yeah. Okay, so that kind of comes into play at the end of the movie. I got an answer for that one, though. I, I figured out the plot hole. I covered that one when we get to it. Okay, well, good, because that's a big one. <laughs> so then they have this amazing chase, and, and you really, really have to suspend disbelief because the entire time this chase is going on, Brubaker is hanging on to the wing of the plane, and they even did a 360-like loop-de-loop, and he still hung on. <laughs> And this is a guy that's been out in the desert for like three days. He's dehydrated. He's tired. He's like, there's just like, okay, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> he has superhuman powers. Yeah, he must. He must. But then they, uh, yeah, the, I love this, the way that uh, Telly Savalas' character, Albion, uses his crop dusting skills to trick the helicopters into flying right into the side of a cliff yeah wow. taking them both out simultaneously i was impressed with that and then it's like okay now he's got to get back to his family so you have a you have a uh, explanation for this how he did that well i i do i had uh, one other thing i just wanted to mention an, another uh, issue of hal holbrook's lack of attention to detail the cleanup at that uh, studio where they were doing all the television uh, for the Mars landing wasn't very well cleaned up because uh, the reporter Elliot Gould's character found something there that verified that the astronauts were alive. So if that had been cleaned up properly, that wouldn't have happened. Oh, totally. And it even was still set up almost like a movie studio set. Um, they just didn't do much to cover their traces. Well, my plot hole coverage is that the memorial service Actually, she was getting ready to go to it a, a day before all this action was taking place in the desert. And uh, then they went to it. It was a long drive. And uh, by the time they got there, they, that allowed enough time for our hero, Brubaker, and Elliot Gould to get to the to the site. That's weak, but I, that's the only... Well, they could they could have fixed that really easily. I think. I think um, you know it, yeah. would, it would have it wouldn't oh. even taken any extra time or money. They could have just filmed it so that that she was out in the back with the kids playing in the pool and and didn't hear the phone ring, and so just didn't answer it. And then the memorial could have happened, like you say, like the next day, and then it would have made it a lot more uh, yeah. plausible that they could have driven all the way from the military base to the memorial and have him get there right as they're like putting his body in the ground so to speak that's the one thing when i saw it back in 1978 that bothered me but i i, I loved the movie so much i didn't it didn't really matter so when you were singing in the theater like all this other stuff didn't really cross your mind it was just like you got swept up in the action and what was going on totally yeah totally and of course the moon landings were just you know kind of going on and taking place and I never even thought about what it would take to go to Mars. Yeah. So yeah, no, it was just I just got swept up in the action and the and the uh, paranoia and and all the conspiracy and all that. But the ending was was one that I never did quite reconcile in my own brain. Yeah, this this movie yeah. sort of let let put more fuel to the fire that the uh, around the conspiracy that the moon landing was uh, similarly hoaxed and I mean the uh, there's there's a lot of research around the fact that we didn't have the technical ability to do that kind of a hoax with the television technology we had at the time, but also um, Russia and Japan have sent 
uh, orbiters around the moon and taken high resolution photos and you can see artifacts from the the lunar landing in those photos so it's like that that conspiracy has been so debunked but it's still it still continues to thrive as <laughs> as do many other conspiracies <laughs> these days so yeah that's, that's a, they, that, no kidding no kid yeah no that's Oh yeah, no, I I, uh, I enjoyed the film when I first saw it because it was just it was it was kind of nonstop action, and of course that and and the time period that this was being filmed in the nineteen seventies, we had Watergate, we had some other CIA cover ups that took place, we had the resignation of the president. I mean, there, it was a really strange time with people and their confidence in the government and what was going on in the news media and so forth. Yeah, so this just fed into that, or fed off of that. Yeah, there was a, I think we mentioned this before, but there was this cycle of paranoia and conspiracy films in the 70s. And, oh, here it is. It's uh, part of the cycle of 1970s conspiracy movies. These include Executive Action, Clute, Chinatown, Cutter's Way, Telephone, Winter Kills, The Conversation, The Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, The Domino Principle, Good Guys Wear Black, Twilight's Last Gleaming, Hangar 18, Capricorn One, and All the President's Men. And so there was a there was just a string of like these conspiracy movies coming out every year. And yeah, it, it definitely fits into that category. Boy, if we watched all of those, I don't know that I'd ever recover from my from my uh, depression. <laughs> that's a, that's that's like a dozen You'd be looking films. over your shoulder all the time, wondering. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> wow. Some of those are really good. Well, we are going to, uh, it's a nice lead-in. We are going to do, in our next podcast, a conversation with Gene Hackman from 1974. So that'll kind of be a tie a bow on our uh, paranoia conspiracy films and i'm really glad that we did not do the parallax view yeah same that one is the most troubling of all of them to me the way that ended wow you've kind of piqued my interest but at the same time i'm not sure i want to go there oh harrison ford is in the conversation terry gar oh that's right yeah it's early in his career 1974 a little bit before star wars yeah interesting that'll be fun to watch so what did you give this as a rating? I feel like ours are going to diverge on this one. Well, I, I, uh, I'm I all the way from a three to an eight. <laughs> the three, without saying too much, is the ending and a couple of the other big plot holes in terms of travel to Mars. And the eight is the chase, the, the overall theme, Al Holbrook playing to the hilt, the... Uh, the uh, bad guy so my overall rating i'd give it a uh, i guess i'd give it a seven. Oh, we're not that far off i gave it a six i felt like it was a little bit above sort of the middle of the pack uh because of the great action scenes even though they were kind of ridiculous but they were fun and they were they were ridiculous in a in a very entertaining way and there were a lot of them i didn't like these these really contrived sort of speeches that some of the characters had and and i and yeah, the, the plot holes, I guess maybe watching it at home, you don't get swept up in the story as much as at the theater. It's just that I could, just like right from the beginning, I was like making a list in my head of, well, that doesn't make sense, or that doesn't make sense, or this is how you could prove that was not happening. And so, yeah, that kind of detracted from the <laughs> movie for me. 
I'll have to send you a photo of my list. (laughs) You won't believe it. Uh, Because I I was sitting there as it was unwinding, and I just kept writing down more and more things. I'm like, wow, this is... Yeah, you should send me your list. I'd like to see that. (laughs) I'll send you my list. (laughs) So anyway, it was was a fun movie. uh, And they can't all be tens, right? Nor nor can they all be ones or zeros. It was entertaining. I probably wouldn't watch it again or... And it did well at the box office. The music was pretty good. I, I thought, you know, I do like Jerry Goldsmith's music. And and it was well filmed. Like, the cinematography was good. I uh, I thought it looked very much like a big action film should look. Yeah, it, it showed the budget, yeah. the big budget on it. So up next is The Conversation. And that was our review of Capricorn One. And coming to you from North Bend, it's Matt. And here from Los Angeles, Bob... Uh, We'll wish everybody happy movie watching.